Hello, and welcome to the Connected Cities podcast. I'm your host, Kate Murray, and we have a great conversation for you today between Saskia Sasson and Michele Kuto on housing and inequality, which is brought to you in collaboration with the University of Melbourne Affordable Housing Hallmark Initiative. But first, a few updates from us. You might have noticed our name change. We've evolved from the Connected Cities Lab into the Melbourne Centre for Cities. Same friendly faces, same passion for interdisciplinary and international research to foster responsible and cosmopolitan city leadership and the information it needs in an interconnected and increasingly urbanised planet. But we do have a new name and we've grown a bit in size. Next, you might have noticed a break between episodes this year. In part, that was because of lockdowns here in Melbourne. But I also want to shout out to our other podcast, Climate Talks which we've put together in collaboration with Melbourne Climate Futures. Climate Talk centres on COP26 in Glasgow, before, during and after, and features some important information and fascinating discussions around plans to tackle climate change. You can find links to Climate Talks in the show notes of this episode and also on our website. But today, we're off to the 2021 Housing Assembly Symposium held in November at the Melbourne School of Design here at the University of Melbourne. And rather than going on the lengthy journey of introducing both Michele Akuto and Saskia Sassen, I'm going to leave it to Michele to do the introductions. Well, good morning, everyone, uh, or good evening or afternoon, depending on whether you're watching this from abroad or indeed uh, later at our recording. Uh, my name is Michele Akuto. I'm Professor of Urban Politics, uh, Director of the Melbourne Centre for Cities and Associate Dean for Research in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and thanks for joining us uh, uh, for this morning keynote uh, and praise for that conversation. Uh, first and foremost, before we get going, uh, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of the lands, many lands properly, um, upon which we meet this morning uh, and pay respect uh, to the elders past, present and emerging. Um, for me, that would be the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, and I would like to invite everyone else elsewhere to reflect on the traditional owners of their lands. Now, the session we're about to jump into is about an hour whirlwind, I would presume, a conversation uh, with Saskia Sassen. I'll uh, skip lengthy introduction to a pretty straightforward and short bio because there's probably not much to introduce in terms of notoriety and and global cachet that Saskia uh, brings to the table. Uh, so for those probably very few uh, that don't know her, Professor Saskia Sassen is Professor of Sociology uh, and the former chair of the Committee of Global Thought at Columbia University and honorary professor currently as well at University College London. Uh, and the holder of countless awards uh, that I shall not list, uh, the things like the Prince of Astoria Award, uh, the recent, just last year, the Geneva Picciotto Award, uh, uh, and many, many more. Uh, many, 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 many uh, uh, honorary degrees uh, and accolades, uh, and a vast variety, a pretty lengthy book, list of books, uh, uh, like the Global City, like Territory, Authority and Rights, uh, um, that have been translated in over 20 languages. So once again, probably not needing much of an introduction. Uh, what Saskia and I uh, are going to do for the next uh, about minutes is a bit of a guided conversation. So I have a number of questions for her uh, and very kindly uh, tuning in from New York uh, at a later work to chat to us about it. I very much encourage everyone that is following live to feel free to pop questions uh, in the Q&A function uh, of the symposium, and I'll throw them straight in uh, if I can, um, and really, really encourage everyone to engage live uh, with us. Now, with that, Saskia, why don't we get the ball rolling, if that's okay with you? Yes, yes. Just wonderful. Delighted. Uh, to have this opportunity to talk with you, to see you, to hear you criticize me, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> go light on criticisms. <laughs> I'll, I'll dive straight in. And I think so we've 
discuss us can i frame in this a bit in the context of the, uh, the symposium opening so a few of the key developments that are happening at the moment in australia and seeing if we can create a bit of a international expertise uh, and the reality really around the moment for us here in Melbourne, in Victoria, and Australia more generally. So to start you off uh, with something, could be easy, could be hard, um, but uh, we were chit-chatting just before we started live and we we're discussing the question of whether the crisis at the moment is a it, it is a cause for optimism and pessimism. Uh, so to start you off on that, Saskia, uh, needless, needless to say, COVID-19 has impacted housing prices uh, uh, in similar ways in Australia to many other parts of the world. Um, so for us, housing prices have increased by about 20% uh, in Melbourne over the last 12 months. Um, that's mainly due to inter low interest rates, uh, but Fundamentally, this is sort of a crisis that has superimposed itself to an ongoing crisis you've already written and spoken about and, uh, and, and discussed the, um, so the housing crisis more globally. So I wonder, if I can start you on that, is, is this then a reason for even further pessimism about the context? Is there any optimism about the direction of uh, the challenges of affordable housing? Where do you see the situation going now? Well, uh, when if you ask me the question that way, I say we're headed for a battlefield, a battle. I think that what we are witnessing is a growth of powerful actors who are grabbing what they should not be grabbing. And that means that the lower income or the modest middle classes or even the not so modest middle classes are put at a disadvantage. And the disadvantage begins with pricing. You know, it's not even embedded, let's say, in the quality of the housing. It is simply almost what, what one could describe as a kind of act of grabbing and assigning a price that is not necessarily the price that one might have expected if you know if you take a serious analysis of how that housing uh, fits into whatever the city it is operating in. So I, I think it, it's quite a negative uh, in my reading. And the, the question for me is, what is next? You know, how do we address this? This is serious stuff. And we already know, for instance, that women who are retiring after having worked a whole life are winding up on the street. They are living on the street. These are women who, for their whole lives, worked hard and had a home. And now they're out. And, you know, we, we are picking up on more and more extreme conditions. That, to me, tells me, I mean, almost the most dramatic image is, you know, have we entered a new epoch? Yeah. An epoch which is marking itself as pretty more brutal than what we saw, say, after World War II and all those decades, you know, when housing was something that more and more people gained access. That seems to have changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years. Let me, well, let, let me ask you about that. Uh, is the, the framing of it as a fight, uh, as a brutal time, uh, sort of a, a dark age uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of narrative. Uh, I wonder then, uh, having worked with people like Leilani Farr and so on, I, I wonder then what are the tools and the tricks and the tactics available for those advocating for affordable and, 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 and accessible housing today, if, if we're headed or if we're right in the middle of a fight, uh, how do you fight? Yeah, so, so I think that what I just described to you, which is what is happening in New York City and in major cities in the United States, is one might say among the more extreme conditions, right? So that there are still areas like in Europe where everything is much more reasonable. I mean, the Europeans have always, to me, seemed a bit more reasonable. Pache the Nazis, you know, in all those other extreme situations, which, of course, were also part of that history. But when it comes to housing, 
the Europeans have done better, I think, for their people than uh, than what we see in the Americas. Huh? So, so what is what is next is a question that is not easy to answer, but but one has the sense that it will take a while before we are back to something more familiar that we experienced you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when you had an opportunity for middle-class, modest middle-class people to gain access to a home. Uh, and, and that, I, I remember I, I started studying this whole issue quite a while ago, but, you know, like maybe 30 years ago, is when I began to see, maybe it was more like 25 years ago, when I began to see a new way of using housing. And I, I, I wrote about this. In other words, it was not simply a question, okay, you either own or do not own a house, you either rent or do not rent a house. No, no, something else in play. And that something else, increasingly in my reading, began to be represented by what was also a new modality in the markets electronic markets, you know, the advanced markets, which was that just about anything, including modest houses, could be transformed into assets, asset-backed security. Once you had that in play, every house, more or less, that was more, you know, standing still, not, not destroyed houses, clearly, could be inserted in a completely different circuit, which had nothing to do with housing per se. It had to do with assets. Once that enters the picture, that it is about assets, no matter how they were originated, and not about housing, well, most modest income households were going to have a battle ahead of that. And I, in my reading, that is what we're seeing. Because many people are still asking the question, but why? I mean, those who own houses and want to rent out houses, they they want to make sure that people rent their houses or buy their houses, right? Well, yes, no, because and the no has simply to do with this new mode, where the real search for assets, materialities, you can buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. It's not simply housing. Housing happens to be a materiality but it is not about housing. And I think that is something that is quite absent as an analytics, if you want, you know, in the general conversation about housing nowadays. It's not only about housing being more expensive, et cetera. It's a deeper transformation than that. Sort of that is my argument. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I just want to pick on that specifically, even though I scribbled something else on my note. But, but it, I think that's something that struck me of what you have been doing for for quite some time, as, as you said now, that one of the first stories that you were telling already, well, well ahead of this, even sort of ahead of the GFC, was to me a very international political economy story, a financial story. Uh, and I wonder if that sort of creation of a conversation is fundamentally exactly not so much about the material itself that it is about financial assets and financial transactions and, and markets. Uh, is How is that becoming even more um, unfamiliar and uncharted? How, how is that financialization making the whole situation even more incomprehensible? Because I wonder, it's been around for quite some time, so wh why have we not learned the lesson or learned better financial um, conversation and, and jargon or tactics. Well, when you say we, the we, one, one way of thinking about it is that there are two we's. <laughs> one is we, you, me, etc. And there is another we. <laughs> and that other we are are, are a, a totally different crowd. They are as interested in housing as you and I might be, but they come with a different project. They come with a different type of capability to transform uh, that the housing question 
into something else, you know. And and it's a it's a bit of an intractable, of course, because a house is a house is a house. <laughs> so people see the house, but what they don't see is that that house is also functioning as an asset-backed security in the global markets, which can be, you know, bought, sold, bought, sold, bought, sold many times. And so, I mean, the the sense that one has really is that these very advanced modes, you know, mind you, projects designed by brilliant minds, and we cannot blame them. They are just, you know, uh, but they're being used, if you want. And, and it, it's it's just not an easy subject right now. It is not as easy to transform the housing question into something where you would say, okay, we're going to help the low-income people with housing. Well, you know, insofar as housing is now of interest to those who want to use it for asset-backed securities and that kind, I just mentioned that because it's the most familiar, but, you know, there are many other versions of that. But that changes the game completely. And I think a lot of people who are working on housing honest, serious people who want to understand the housing question are missing that part too much. Maybe it's a bit present, but the notion that housing is now functioning as two very, very different functions. One is housing, which still exists, you know, in most of the world, it's still housing. (laughs) And then another version which is asset-backed securities, you know, to mention just the most familiar term. And, and that, to me, it's important that your average person be aware of that. It's not, it's not so difficult to understand, you know. And, and I, it always hurts me to see that, that people who would benefit from knowing that, you know, if all the modest middle classes were aware of that, they could actually confront, you know, battle it out a bit more. But when you don't understand what is happening, that transformation, then then it's different. You know, it, it's it's just more difficult. And you are likely to be losers. A lot of people who thought they were buying a little modest house have wound up with very little, with with nothing in some cases. So so you know now what I'm describing again I repeat, it's the extreme condition. But the extreme condition is growing, and the extreme condition is doing very well. Thank you. <laughs> you know they they are uh, they are not unhappy. Let's put it that way. Uh, I could agree with that. Uh, and and for those that don't know, the "Who are the we?" is a common comment that I get from Saskia anyway. Uh, so I completely agree. Let me jump in on a question that's just come in. Um, from from the from the uh, from the audience uh, because in a sense sort of touches on this conversation. It's a question from uh, someone called Daniel, and so D- D- Daniel's fundamentally rehearsing a bit of what you said. So the debate on housing concentrate a lot on local stakeholders and local capital or national stakeholders and national capital. Uh, so how does then that relate to transnational flows uh, of real estate capital? So, so his question is, do these transnational flows uh, substantially impact uh, affordable housing um, and how are they articulated? Well, there are really one way of putting it is there are two worlds in play here. One of them is, you know, reasonable, familiar. Yes, the prices may be higher than most uh, lower income people can afford, but, you know, but it's still a familiar condition. You know, it's about housing. And it's not the first time in our history that housing can have prices that go up, prices that go down, et cetera, et cetera. So that is still probably in most parts of the world, that is how it functions. Uh, which means that a lot of modest income households can actually find a way in which they can own a house. You know, not all of them, clearly, but, you know, it's still reasonable. But then there is that other side, and that other side which we see certainly in our major cities, you know, cities that are, that are, uh, that are full of very, very active firms, that are seriously effective in extracting what they want, you know, that kind of familiar narrative. And I think that is what we're seeing, you know, quite a bit with housing 
in major cities, not in poor cities. That that is a totally different world. But, you know, we have a lot of major cities that, yes, have a lot of poor people, but they also have a lot of people who are not poor. And so that is really the the area where, where I'm focused on. So, I mean, I, I think that we are confronting a fairly difficult situation when it comes to this aspect of housing. I don't think it's going to be easy to to change that because also, you know, in high finance, they have developed extraordinary capabilities and they can really take over a whole variety of elements, including elements that you would say, why would they care about that little house? Because it's no longer a little house. It's an asset. You know? And uh, and so, you know, I, I really, I have a hard time uh, imagining that we could actually change that condition uh, anytime soon. Eventually, yes, because decay, I see everything as a curve. So eventually decay sets in. When exactly it will do, who knows? But but so 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 that means that when decay sets in, you know there are positives and negatives, but there will be a lot of negatives. Uh, the only positive that I can imagine out of that is that big firms leave certain cities because the cities are, are more impoverished, because it's because there are there are uh too many dangerous situations, you know, they're no longer attractive. I can imagine those scenarios so that they sort of, they give up on some cities. They say, to hell with that. It's too complicated. It's not worth it. We run risk. That is also happening in many parts of the world. Huh? That, that, uh, and so, but it does also mean that in, in, in cities like, like you know, the, 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 the good cities of the Americas, not all of them, huh, but quite a few, the big cities, big cities in Europe, that's a different story. There, there it, this new mode can really be very operative. You know, they can really extract quite a bit of, uh, of money. And uh, so, so to me, it, it's sort of a problematic situation at both ends. One is those who barely have access to housing or those who have to pay a lot for housing that is very poor. And the other ones, the ones that transform housing into asset-backed securities and other such fantastic instruments, it's it's not it's not a strong, good, attractive scenario. It is not. Let, let me pick you on that one, because I think there might be a third side to that story. Uh, and I guess sort of that's a narrative in which you would have seen quite extensively in the US as well. So the narrative is, the city, the city, the city, uh, and so the centrality, and then the global city centrality in the conversation. But then at the same time, that narrative has sort of come in, and there's a debate, uh, a physical movement to the to the regional. We, we call it regional or or the countryside, uh, the escape to the countryside kind of narrative, um, which in a sense then reduces housing affordability around the city itself. Uh, as well, so I, I wonder. To, so to me, that's a double question. That's the question about uh, does it change the centrality of the city in the debate? Uh, mm-hmm. But also, I guess, picking on your last uh, uh, comment, uh, does it also have a perverse effect on the capabilities of the the region, the country, the suburban to even cope with this shift right. of massive interests, massive uh, uh, flows? What do you think about that? Well, these are excellent, excellent points, and I think it will vary, you know, from city to city. But um, the centrality of the city is probably today a diminished condition, I would argue. There might be exceptions, you know, if you are dealing with a country where its main city or cities are somehow rising, you know, that, 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 that does also exist. But when we think about more, more familiar grounds, um, I do think that, yes, the city remains a very important zone for extracting, huh? but it also has some positives. I think most cities that are more or less functional are positive environments. Uh, 
the what I described, you know, the the, the, the financial aspects, they, they are they're concentrated in certain settings, you know, they, they don't bother too much with most of what are the inhabitants of cities, the housing of cities, they don't just don't, you know, it, it's they they know exactly what they want and they get that, but there it's not everything. You know, they don't want everything. No, I don't know if I explain myself. In other words, you know, there are a whole bunch of of housing situations, etc., which are of little interest to big dealers, whereas others, uh, you know, other situations, there is great interest in that, in transforming that, in buying that, even if it is just to put it, you know, in, in this sort of this other circuit where it can be bought, sell, bought. It's about buying and selling rather than housing, though they are using housing, <laughs> you know. <that. laughs> but, but, uh, but in the long run, long history of cities, I would argue that it's very difficult to kill a city, you know, and a city because it's so difficult to kill, inevitably. There are going to be all kinds of elements in a city that will survive across time, you know. And and so for me, the question is a question that I sort of have in my head is what is it today in today's big cities that is a signal of you know of a positive growth of interest in enabling your city, maximizing, you know, because that is also happening. And furthermore, we are entering an epoch when a lot of land is is really no longer accessible, either because a lot of land nowadays is being used uh, to, to, to grow stuff that then is sold. You know, it, it's, it's not like we have vast stretches of land that nobody knows what to do with and that are, no, there is a, and and everything is rising, partly because the populations are rising, partly because there are more people who can afford to buy food. And, you know, and even though we still have a lot of poor in most, uh, certainly most American cities. So, so the question is, for me, is one way of putting it is, will cities actually survive? And I say yes, they will. I mean, but some will go under. Uh, there will be pain. There will be losses. But in the end, we humans really couldn't do without city. You know, we Is need it? a total mix of elements that a city has. Quick, quick provocation on that before I go to a question that I've got in the chat. Then, so I agree with you on the question of the land there. Uh, and the capabilities, but I wonder, by reverse, that is it easier to kill a town then that has perhaps more land and more speculative capacity, and and the capacities themselves, uh, a local government or or the knowledge system in a town is simply smaller. So, is it easier to kill a town than a city? Well, that's a very good question, and I think, honestly speaking, I think it varies, but. Uh, we know that towns have gone under in a way that major cities have have elements that are going under, but then the whole city is not going to go under. Whereas we know of towns that simply they ceased being operational. Uh, now, you know, the question of dimensions, etc. I don't know. Our populations are growing though not, you know, at extreme rates of speed. I mean, it's slow, you know, it's slow. <laughs> uh, but it's a good question what you ask. And, and it, you know, it could actually go in many different directions. I mean, the ones that I think are the most fragile are small towns that depended very much on particular, you know, types of factories being there. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Very sort of narrow, narrow economies. Well, those, many of those towns are in deep trouble and some of them are finished, frankly. Uh, so we know that a town 
can die. A city is a bit of a different condition, you know, because there are so many actors who depend on it. Once you have a city, a functional city, you have all kinds of things that, that come in play. So that, that, that would be more difficult. But, you know, look at Detroit. Detroit died and then it re-emerged, which is also an interesting point. But Detroit, everybody said Detroit is dead. It, it was mm-hmm. quite dead. And now it's it's a, it's a working city. It, it's good. I was almost worried that you'd call Detroit a town. Uh, let me let me take you to to. I've been ten, intentionally annoying here. Uh, friends know that uh, that's a town I, I know well. Uh, let me take you to a town uh, up north from Melbourne called Canberra, where the government sits. Uh, I wonder uh, what's the role of the state in all of this? What's the role of the, of the national um, framing and the national powers in all of this? And this goes to the question that then I have for you from the audience, but how does the state come in into this picture at this moment in time? That is a, that is a very good uh, question. And my reading in, in big cities, I don't know in smaller towns, etc. that I don't know, but in big cities, I think that there have been major actors who have used, and many have abused, the powers that still reside in a government. And they have known how to use them. And my immediate question then is a juxtaposing with what about the modest actors in a city? Did they also have access? Did they also actually develop capabilities to connect with the government functions and to ask for help for this and that? Well, in some cases, yes, that happened. We know that. But in many cases, not at all. So there still is a kind of, in in so many of these uh, big cities, there's still kind of a difference, you know. If you are rich and powerful, somehow it makes a difference. (laughs) And if you are poor... Uh, yeah, it also makes a difference. And and that always makes me sad. You know, I always think a city is a place where those who are disadvantaged, those who are poor, also have a claim that they can make on the city. They have standing, you know, and 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 when that gets lost, I think something that's something significant when that is lost. When it's money etc. So what you see now, for instance, in some European countries where you have a bit of a crisis with housing is that the governments are actually building uh, low-cost houses. That is how it should be done. That is very unlikely to happen in the United States and in so many other countries. And that's a problem. I wonder just a quick follow-up on that because I think one of the narratives in Australia at the moment uh, is that social housing is a state-level responsibility. But when that is articulated in Australia, uh, it, it points at the state the same way in the US, you would call the, 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 the federated state, not the central state, not the central government. Uh, and yet it is fundamentally funded by uh, uh, agreements with the federal government. So there's sort of this additional point of politics and economics in that, uh, uh, that at one hand it passes the bucket of the responsibility to the state uh, rather than the central state, and on the other hand uh, relies on federal government funds uh, and investments that have been insufficient. So I wonder how have you witnessed a sort of that diatribe of there are three levels of government often in this picture, not just the local and central. Yeah, I mean, I think that that in the case of the United States, especially, there is a kind of autonomy that in Europe is is not quite present, but an autonomy to even small towns that they can do what they think should be done in their country, in their in their city or whatever. You know, Europe in that sense is is a bit more uh, 
under certain major notions and measures, how you conduct it, etc. So in the United States, yeah, there you sort of it always remind me a bit that uh, a bit that after all the United States started a bit as a what do we call it wild I don't know what you know, wild land wild you know there there is a, a sense of which is interesting of individuals especially in some more isolated areas in small towns where they they are they feel entitled to make claims they feel entitled also to seriously contest governments governments are seen as second rate entities in many of these uh cities you know which are smaller cities which are full of people who build themselves up you know from scratch who transformed a place that was half dead into actually a working city even if it might not be a terribly attractive you know so we have a lot of that in the united states which when you go sort of in the interior of the united states it's just amazing how strong the sentiment is about the rights that they have to the city what they can claim from the government i mean you just don't see that in europe in europe the 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 people have can make very powerful claims they have many rights many more rights than in the united states but they don't have this cowboy notion as we might say you know that i can do that it doesn't work that way it's more that the the law itself contains the rights that they have and we don't have that you know so we the wild west notion is still a bit there in a way that in it's it's really not in europe you i just use europe as a big juxtaposition yeah look i, I wonder if that then takes us to a consideration that in fact then the depth of the crisis uh, and that's a real feeling of entitlement as you say to contest government to contest uh, pr- the private sector does it enhance then people's um is the housing crisis fundamentally enhancing people's claim to the right to the city well i mean i think in the united states what what in europe in many european i don't know if in all european cities but what in european cities might be taken very very seriously the right to the city the you know the the notion of respecting whatever the existing laws you know around a, <clears throat> a situation an urban condition I think in the United States it's a bit more the its own version its contemporary version of what we might in another epoch have called the wild west you know it sort of always amuses me when i think that and and sometimes it's actually very legitimate and good stuff you know that the the neighborhood a neighborhood or a city the leadership of a city rises against something that the government i think that is good that is not always bad i mean but sometimes of course it is it's not great um so so my reading certainly in a country like like the americas i i am also thinking about latin america here that latin america is already more different because the leadership is very strong very engaged there aren't the the in between spaces that we have in the united states very often you know that are sort of a bit of a free for all in in you don't don't have that in other parts of the world as much so you know it really depends but one thing sort of that i would extract from all of this is um is that the city life animal which can generate um you know all kinds of opportunities i would think that most of these opportunities are dormant there you know nobody has time really uh most people don't but they are there and the time might come we have seen this in the history of the united states also the time might come when they come in very handy and suddenly people say okay we have this right I mean what is always stunning to me in the United States is how little the citizenry knows about what their rights are so but the rights exist and so every time that there is something that is quite delicate 
suddenly they discover that they have those rights. And that is also a very interesting feature, I would say. But it is underutilized also, you know. And I don't know, in Europe, I mean, I think I think of Europe is just a, a more reasonable proposition yeah, than, uh, than the Americas. 100%. I've got a question exactly in Europe. But let me throw you two quick questions first that we have from yeah. Jesse and Rob in the audience that have probably been patiently waiting. And I, I'm going to start with Jesse because it, it, in a sense it starts from the Wild West, uh, it starts from the Conquistadores, uh, and it starts from that framing. Uh, so Jesse's question starts concerning is, uh, uh, have you seen examples of um, financial capital housing systems uh, that try or return to pre-colonial modes? Uh, and I guess sort of that's a very live debate uh, in Australia uh, as to building with country, building with indigenous knowledge and indigenous housing connections. H have you have you seen anything that goes before the Wild West the, to the pre-colonial? Uh, well, you know that that is. Uh, I mean, I've done I've done some research on that because also because of my Latin American origins. You know that, um, and and so that was a very clear case of of uh, an invasion, if you want, of foreign actors. And, but um, I, I am not sure that I have seen, tell me again, what is the core little element that, that these, these uh, uh, colleagues of yours or, or whatever are? Thinking? I think it would be interesting to see if you've come across, and it could be telling that you have it in, in a sense, uh, calls or efforts to go back to pre-colonial indigenous uh, uh, modes of thinking through this. Yeah. Well, there is now, there are, there are more and more people, but it's still a very small group, who are very interested in recovering the brutal histories uh, with which we started, you know, in the, in the West, uh, mostly, of course, originating in Europe and then the slave trade, etc. And that is now a big subject. And that, I, to me, it's very important that that be a big subject. But that I don't think will necessarily um, alter too many things. It will alter a few things because we already can see that certain rights are being granted, uh, you know, to, to people who have been expelled from places that they belong to, you know. It's a very slow-moving history. We don't know how long it will last, how long it will take. Will it be allowed to continue? You know, we don't know that. But there clearly is now a rather uh, strong sense that something needs to be recognized, and hence we need to, uh, you know, to, to remedy the damage that we have done. This is very, very strong right now. Most people who would be against it probably are not saying it. You see, they feel, really? I'm not going to get involved in that, but I don't believe in that. Uh, so what then would happen if the other side succeeds in their claims? That's a big question. Yeah. Very definitely. Let me, let me then throw you one that we've got from Miranda that sort of takes it one step further. Um, so she says, um, hopefully she, and apologies if I've misgendered, uh, I'm relying on a, on a, on a chat. Uh, historically, in times of crisis, so post-war, for instance, reconstruction, uh, housing was supplied for working individuals, um, billeting, boarding houses, shared accommodation. Uh, so the question there is, are we too rigid in our idea about what kind of housing people uh, should always have. Uh, can we revert to some form of shared uh, uh, approaches? Uh, and can we do that without harm? Well, I think that that I remember I got very involved when I became a single mother in New York. Uh, we organized, and one mode in which we organized, it was also a very special time. Huh? It was people were open to. New York City was recovering. New York City had been totally destroyed, more or less, you know, uh, economically speaking. And so this, this notion of rights, you know, the rights that we 
citizens have, et cetera, et cetera. And so one, one thing that was also being developed was women, single, single mothers, I was one of them, um, where we tr tried to generate a, a mode of living which involved a shared kitchen that was huge, where everybody could cook, et cetera, and do that, and then separate mini housing units so that we had the, also our own, you know, moments with our children and whatever, our mates. So that was a very special, and I don't know how much of that still exists. For me, it was heaven. I love that, you know. But that was already an indication of a disposition and a recognition of a possibility. Huh? And it would be interesting for me, I hadn't even thought about it, to see whether this has come up again, because I know at some point it sort of died, you know. I mean, there was a time in, in New York when we were all activists, you know, we were all contesting power, and such interesting innovations came out of that. But that then eventually died. So what I don't know really is what is happening today along those lines, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what you were after, but um, in its time, it was really an interesting proposition. It was, it was, it, it, we became very excited about this option. It seemed so reasonable and, and especially for single mothers, you know, I was one of them. Um, it, it really made a difference, but it was also a special time. It was a very special time in New York because Manhattan was poor. Manhattan was broke. There was a lot of empty space. Manhattan was seen as dangerous. All of those elements meant that you had access to buildings at very low costs. You know, it was very, very special time. I really enjoyed that time. I, 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 li I like that you've taken that further into sort of disassembling the idea itself of housing into sort of different constituent parts and sort of the, the kitchen and the, and the dwelling. I, I think there's, there's a lot in there. I think that, that could tie into the question that I have from Rob uh, um, uh, uh, that's reflecting on sort of national news and broadcasts that we've got here um, uh, that are really centered on interest rates and record low interest rates. Uh, um, so he's uh, suggesting that uh, in many contexts, the sort of uh, uh, high levels of gearing and the, 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 the keeping of the interest rates so low disproportionately supports investors over first home buyers. Um, so it's got a very practical question, which is, uh, uh, what, what would be the advice that you would give to the first home buyer that feels locked out of that system, that, that feels disproportionately affected versus the investor? Right. No, I think this is a real problem. Uh, when, when we started out, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't know how long ago that was, but it was a long time ago. There was a lot of, for one, Manhattan was poor, poor, you know, relatively speaking, but a lot of the, the rich had left. Manhattan was seen as problematic, as full of crime. Uh, there were quite a, quite a bit of criminal activities going on. There's no doubt about that. So when we then entered Manhattan under those conditions, we had space, you know, we had, we also risked, uh, you know, we always, the notion was you always have $2 in your hand if you step out on the street, more than to many sets of little $2. So otherwise they would sort of hit you or kill you, etc. I mean, Manhattan was brutal at that point. It was a decaying city. In that decay, all kinds of housing became low priced. Uh, and, and so it was, a great time, you know, that is also the irony that a city can contain, which I find very attractive, you know, that. Uh, did I answer the question or not quite? Huh? Yeah, I think that, that, that goes to there. I actually have a question from Steph that wants to sort of go back slightly to your, uh, I guess, your personal example uh, in, in New York and your own experience of some shared kitchen and, 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 and that story. And Steph's very practical. She, she says, That's, that sounds like a fantastic way to live, yeah. Would you be comfortable? Are you able to tell us how was it funded? How was it set up? Well, you know, number one, as I said, Manhattan was a poor city. A lot of cheap housing was available. That opened up 
ground, not just for locals who lived in Manhattan, but for all kinds of foreigners who came. You know, Manhattan was a bit, we had people from many, many countries in Europe, not the rich countries, but the poorer countries. So it was really a very, very special period. Now, in my case, it it didn't last very long where, where we had set up, you know, this, this thing about it was all, all women with children and we shared the kitchen and we shared a common room and the rest was our special, you know, our separate uh, uh, sort of uh, where we slept, where our children were, etc. Uh, it really worked well, especially for somebody like me. I was also teaching, you know, and the notion of having having others and other women with children in the house was it just. And, and, and the city was a rough city. The city, there were a lot of deaths that were happening. You know, there was a lot of brutality in Manhattan at that point. So for me, this was perfect. You know, eventually it ended, whatever. I, I, I got engaged, you know, with one husband, or I can't remember which one, but <laughs> so <laughs> forget that. You can eliminate that. Everybody already heard it probably too late, but anyhow. So so I don't know. It just was great. I don't Would I want to live like that now? No, I don't think so. You know, so, but it was a question of, but I thought always that that particular period, it should exist in all cities. You know, that there is some set of zones in a city where those modes where you live collectively, etc., exist. We need that in our cities, you know. And it is to me unbelievable that we don't have more of that. And we have less of it nowadays than we used to have when I was, you know, younger, etc. I don't understand why. And I think part of it must be something about the loss of control, you know, by big actors, who knows? But I think it is a pity. I think many people, many women especially, can benefit from those types of arrangements. I don't know what's happening in Europe on that front, by the way. Couldn't possibly comment on Europe. <laughs> uh, let, <laughs> let me throw you another couple of things so I take you slightly out of the personal and... Uh, oh, Australia, okay. What is happening? <laughs> I was just thinking aloud. I wasn't thinking that you were in Europe. <laughs> we could have a lengthy debate about what's happening or not happening at all in, in Italy, but maybe let's leave that to experts like Michele Lanciona. Uh, let me uh, ask you a quick question that sort of takes us a bit out of the personal into the, the, this back into the city. Uh, and I've been read these two questions from Jessica and from Rebecca that are both playing with this, the idea of the city. Uh, so Jessica wonders... Uh, if there's a conflict, uh, you feel like there's a conflict uh, between recovery, the COVID-19 the COVID recovery, the pandemic's recovery, uh, and development. Uh, and she says, in that, we cannot speak against the excessive and aggressive development because of the need for cities to recover. Do you feel like that's a fair statement? Well, yeah, I, I sort of, I think I sort of agree in the sense that we have to give the leadership of cities also a bit of a break. Uh, if the city has been in a lot of trouble for a long time and new leadership comes in, you know, we, we cannot assume that they are bad people if they don't fix it all. You know, that, that, that is just a bit too much. The, the question for me is rather, uh, why don't we have a mode whereby a lot of the wealth, there is so much wealth in our major cities, uh, that that wealth should want to enable the city and that there is something that we develop, something that could also mean that, that, that the people who, the, the rich, who donate. I mean, there are always, you know, rich who are donating, but we need more of that, that they would really be recognized, that, that, that there's something really that we appreciate. Now, the elites in our rich cities, they do a lot of that, but it is a bit of a certain circuit. It doesn't move uh, too far. Often it is we support the opera, we support, you know, whatever. We need more than that. And I think we have a lot of rich people who wouldn't mind 
giving more, but it, it the instruments are not there. The, um, Europe is better in that sense. Europe just demands from its citizenry certain actions, you know, certain payments. It's just more expensive also huh, in Europe. Uh, so so the, we, we could really improve in a very significant way. And the, the very rich who donate would not really notice that they are losing much ground. You know, I mean, there is the concentrations of wealth are quite extraordinary. And uh, so I really don't worry about that, nor should they really worry about, you know. So we have donors who are historically have always donated. But the new generations seem to have other ideas. Now, there is a truth here, and that is that in the older days, there was only so much that you could do with your money. Today, you can do a hell of a lot more with your money. And that then creates a break with the notion, I'm going to support my city, you know. So that 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 is an issue. That is an issue. All right. I think I'll throw you one last one if you can bear with me. Because yeah. uh, it's sort of it's a, in sort of in the interest of sort of tackling Rebecca's uh, question too and not 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 making this about ah. me or you. Uh, so Rebe- Rebecca actually picks up on that and she says, So do you think that the idea that sentiment of shared resources, so land, social value, shared amenity, uh, is it actually possible in a wealthy and vibrant city? How, 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 how is that made possible in, in the rich city? Well, I mean, a rich city, if the leadership of the city, I mean, the, 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 government, the government of the city, I didn't mean the leadership necessarily, but the government of the city, if the government of the city has resources, I think that one can get pretty far with also getting donations, you know, from the rich. And I think that the new younger generations are pretty available to fight that fight. You know, to say, look, let's just, we all love our city, let's work at it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there there is a kind of energy for that. Now, if the leadership is not respected, if it is, if it abuses, if it just supports, you know, some sectors and not others, then you have another situation. Now, a city is always a mix of elements. A city is never going to be a place where everybody agrees. <laughs> it's just not on. And um, and so there, it's not easy. It's not always easy. However, I would then say there are some basic elements that uh, don't hurt anybody, but that would make a lot of difference to the really poor, the really disadvantaged. Now, when you look at a a city like San Francisco, like I mentioned en passant earlier, we now have dozens of women, as I mentioned already, who have retired from their jobs, who are in their 70s, who are living in little tents in beautiful San Francisco. And San Francisco, with it all, has been good. It has just said, okay, you go there, you know, they push them out a bit, sort of a bit further, and there they are. It's ridiculous. San Francisco is a very rich city. Yes, it's nice that they allowed those women to stay outside, you know, but was there nothing better? And there is, I think, where the United States shows a kind of brutality, you know, when it comes to people that I still think, oh, ma'am, I may be wrong, is a bit different in in Europe. Now, I don't know about your country, but probably there too. You know, there, there is something that to me is almost inexplic- inexplicable. And, and you have a sense also that a lot of the heirs of big fortunes uh, are more practical is one gentle way of putting it. Why why should we give it away when we can make money? That kind of practical, you know, a very problematic kind of practical. I mean, I don't, you know, I have a very hard time understanding that. I just, and and, uh, there is a kind of brutality. There is a kind of brutality. I'm I'm glad we circle back to the beginning and the brutality and the fight. Uh, 
Saskia, right on the dot. We kept you for an hour and just tell me an hour and three minutes and 54 seconds of, of, of questioning. So first and foremost, thanks everyone for You've been listening to Saskia Sassen in conversation with Michele Akuto on housing and inequality as part of the 2021 Housing Assembly Symposium brought to you by the University of Melbourne and the Melbourne Centre for Cities. For more information on the symposium and for the full show notes of this episode, visit our website, research.unimelb, that's U-N-I-M-E-L-B, dot edu.au forward slash cities and follow us on twitter with the handle network cities thanks for listening